Support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. Just a few seconds before 4 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Wednesday, February 8th, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. After several years of having a governor that was elected with less than 50% of the vote, Mainers approved ranked choice voting in November. But some legislators and the Maine Attorney General have called into question the constitutionality of ranked choice voting, primarily because the state constitution specifically mentions plurality as opposed to majority. Last week, the state Senate voted 24 to 10 in favor of asking the Maine Supreme Judicial Court to weigh in in a process known as a solemn occasion. The move was proposed by Senate President Mike Thibodeau. In the first half of Maine Currents today, we're going to listen in on the debate that ensued. The process started with Thibodeau requesting that a president pro tem fill in for him so that he could present his proposal. The Sergeant and Arms, please escort the Senator from Androscoggin and Senator Mason to the rostrum where he may assume the duties as President Pro Tem. Senate will be in order. Orders. Senate order. Item 4 1 is Senate Chair Order 12. Chair recognizes the Senator from Waldo, Senator Thibodeau. President Pro Tem, I uh, present a Senate order and move its passage and wish to speak to my motion. Senator from Waldo, Senator Thibodeau, presents the Senate order and moves its passage. Secretary, I'll read the order. Item 4 1 is Senate Order 12. It's now the pleasure of this. Uh, the Chair recognizes the Senator from Waldo, President Thibodeau. Thank you, Mr. President Pro Tem. Ladies and gentlemen of the Senate, uh, today we have a, an important document that uh, hopefully we're going to get unanimous uh, uh, agreement on, and that's this joint order asking Maine Supreme Court to take a look at ranked choice voting. Now, the debate here today isn't about whether or not you agree or disagree with the decision made by voters. The, really, the question for me, and I hope for each and every one of you, is what do we do with a piece of legislation or a, uh, a bill in this chamber that we're told doesn't pass um, the straight face test when it comes to Maine's Constitution. If our Attorney General comes to each, any of us during the legislative process and says, this doesn't, um, this is in conflict with Maine's Constitution, what would we do with it? Well, we certainly wouldn't pass it without some sort of agreement or understanding of whether or not that question is right. And we today are in a situation where many, many folks have suggested, and I truly believe as um, based on my conversations with many folks, both from the Attorney General's office, as well as uh, private conversations from, from people that have, uh, I respect uh, their legal opinions, um, that this is exactly the situation we're in. Maine voters wanted to pass a ranked cho choice voting. Um, that decision was made. But what do we do with it as a legislature? Um, if indeed, the Attorney General's office is right, and this is contrary to Maine's Constitution. We, the last thing in the world that we should do is turn our back on our responsibility to uh, correct this um, conflict between the statute that was passed and Maine's Constitution. Because the next election, 
and God forbid it's in any one of your ele elections that you're in, could uh, be turned upside down and we could leave our state in turmoil, trying to figure out exactly who the winner of that election is. If the Secretary of State moves forward and runs the election under um, the statutes of this state, then we are probably, more than likely, almost inevitably, going to have people that are, are declared the winner. That is contrary to what Maine's Constitution would tell you. The question is between majority and plurality. I don't have to explain that to you. You all have looked at this. You understand it. So today, the decision to me is very simple. It isn't about whether I agree or disagree with ranked choice voting. It's about whether or not, when I took that oath of office and said that I will uphold the Constitution of the state of Maine, whether or not this is part of that, that pledge that I made. To me, it is. I have to uphold the Constitution. I think that we're in violation of it with, with the statute that's on the books. I think we need clarity from Maine's Supreme Court. I'm confident that they're going to take this issue up. They'll get us some answers really quickly. And then, based on their answers, we've got a lot of work to do. The reality is, if, it's, if it is truly constitutional, then we've got a, 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 uh, an appropriation to make to make sure that the Secretary of State has uh, the resources to count the ballots in the manner that is being proposed. That's going to cost us millions of dollars. It would be our responsibility, if this is constitutional, to appropriate them millions of dollars so that they can be counted in the proper fashion. If it's unconstitutional, then we've got another decision to make. Either we're going to change Maine's constitution to make sure that this is not in conflict, or we're going to have to take action to make sure the statute complies with Maine's constitution. Anything else is not fulfilling our obligation to the people that voted for us, that sent us here. I think this is a simple decision. I hope each and every one of you will join me in supporting this, and we will get the question before the Supreme Court as soon as possible. Thank you. The chair recognizes the senator from Kennebec, Senator Bellows. Thank you. I rise in opposition to this measure. I believe we should honor the will of the people and avoid any delay. As we consider this measure, I encourage you to ask yourself, is there a legislative action before us that rises to the level of solemn occasion, or will this have the effect of unnecessary delay? If we were truly worried about the constitutionality of ranked choice voting, we could take unanimous action in both bodies at this time to amend the main constitution to clarify any language that might raise any doubts for any party. We just took unanimous action on another referendum passed by the voters. Uh, I am not personally concerned that there is a constitutional question here, as I believe a plain reading of the main constitution in the word plurality is permissive of majority. Moreover, enacted law has a presumption of constitutionality. If we in the legislature had passed this law, the court would presume it to be constitutional, and we should apply the same standard to a law passed by the voters. There's a real question as to whether this qualifies as a solemn occasion. I am not convinced that the court will take it up. The standard for a solemn occasion is very high in order to preserve separation of powers between the legislature and the courts under the Constitution. 
We do not want to set a precedent of the legislature turning to the courts every time a law is passed to seek an advisory opinion as to the constitutionality of our legislation. Precedent suggests that, in fact, it is not a solemn occasion. In 1981, the court, citing precedents from 1975 and 1976, ruled that no solemn occasion exists when the justices are asked to give their opinions on the law which is already in effect. In 1997, the court further ruled, a solemn occasion refers to an unusual exigency, such an exigency as exists when the body making the inquiry, having some action in view, has serious doubts as to its power and authority to take such action under the Constitution or under existing statutes. I don't think we have serious doubt about our power or authority because no actual legislative action is before us at this time. The legislative action was taken by the people in November. If an aggrieved party chooses to raise a legal challenge after 2018, it will be addressed by the courts then, regardless of whether the court makes an advisory opinion now or not. But it's not clear that such a challenge will be raised then or ever. In my view, a solemn occasion does not exist. I urge you to defer to the will of the people and join me in voting no. Chair recognizes the Senator from Androscoggin, Senator Brakey. Thank you, Mr. President Pro Tem. Uh, I rise in support of the motion before us, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to respectfully disagree with my colleague from, from Kennebec County. You know, I've actually been publicly on the record, even before the, uh, the vote on this happened, of, of supporting uh, the policy of ranked choice voting. Um, but I do think that there are some very serious constitutional questions here that even the Attorney General uh, ha has raised. And I believe that my, my oath of office means that my duty to uphold the Constitution and, and, and to seek, um, seek questions on this to be addressed come before my personal policy preferences. And to the, to the idea that uh, we could today unanimously change the Constitution to, to address this, uh, I, I don't, my understanding of the process is that it's not that simple. Uh, we could unanimously, as the House and Senate maybe propose an amendment, but then that would actually have to go back out to the, to the voters to be ratified. We would still be in the same situation. Why not get clarity on the Constitution uh, from the Supreme Court instead of going th uh, through that process? And if we get to that pro uh, if we get to that process and we hear from the uh, the Supreme Court that uh, action may be needed otherwise, then we could consider a constitutional amendment. But one thing I do not want to see happen is I do not want to see us in a, a constitutional crisis during the next election of the governor where we have two candidates who both think that they won and we put our, our courts in a system, in a situation where they have to pick who the winner is. I don't think any of us want to see that situation. We've seen that happen in presidential races in the past and it, it, uh, it, it leaves a lot of very hurt feelings and a lot of questions uh, unanswered. So I think we can avoid that by today, asking for a solemn occasion and getting some clear guidance on this. Thank you very much. Chair recognizes the Senator from Cumberland, Senator Dion. Good morning, Mr. President Pro Tem. I want to begin by saying that I have a great deal of respect for the President and the concerns that lie behind his proposition as outlined in the order. In contrast, I've been with my wife for 40 years. 40 years of struggling to create what we would call as politicians a more perfect union. It's a work in progress. All right? 
And my wife would probably vote in favor of this order because our constitution and our household has allowed her to declare that based on her opinion of what might occur if I'm allowed to act on my thinking is justification enough for intervention. I have railed under that principle for four decades. I've brought every skill at my disposal to argue this in her court. And to date, I have been unsuccessful. And I thank God that her constitution is not before us today as a body. We actually have a better constitution. We have an understanding that there's a distinct role for the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. And they are to be separate, and in as much as that is the case, their concerns are compartmentalized to their responsibilities. Democracy is messy. We may have concerns about how the people have expressed their will, but they have expressed it. I've learned that 40 years in another arena. I don't challenge it there, and I will not challenge it here today. That will has been expressed. I have read this order, and I do share in some of the concerns, but they're speculation. They're our best guess. They're characterized by qualifiers of I believe, and I think it may. These are not articulation of fact. They're not a description of conduct that has occurred or is about to occur immediately before us. The court, whether we're suspect as to whether or not it should make a legislative decision in its function, is rather a mechanism of true clarity. It can only act if there's actually a controversy before it that there is an actual piece of conduct that has transpired and they're being invited to make a decision about how the law will be applied. Democracy is messy. It's not predictable. We have expectations about how law will function and from time to time the court will write opinions and if you read them, they signal to the legislature that they must, in fact, make adjustments in the future in order to avoid any future controversies. This order, to some, presents that dilemma, that we can look into the future and it's reasonably predicted that something will happen. My wife shares a similar sentiment. When she hears me express a certain thought, it is clear in her mind the inevitable can be predicted. And I reject that. Only because if I'm not allowed to think about what might happen, I can't make a good decision. All right? So really, for four decades, it's been a battle around trust. I trust the court to do its work when presented with an actual case before it. And that assumes that a case could, may, possibly, I think or believe, may arise from an election governed by decision of the people to use ranked choice voting. If we determine today that this law as a law is subject to such concern that we would ask for its constitutionality to be reviewed, 
then every single law we pass as a body is subject to the same type of question. In essence, we would be handcuffing our ability to function as a legislature. We have a role to do. This order, when you get beyond the legalese and the boilerplate, is a list of grievance from an executive officer within the executive branch. I may share or be sympathetic to his concerns, but it is not my duty or responsibility to contradict a law that is in place by virtue of the people's decision. Not now. Maybe in the future it may come back to us as a policy question, but not today. So I urge you to reject this order. And I'll close with this. I've read all the prior solemn occasions, and never once has the judiciary entered into reviewing the constitutionality of an act that already was in place. What a court should do, a conservative, prudent court should do, is wait until that moment that parties bring the question before it as a case. Only then does jurisprudence have any relevance to the question. Only then a court adhering to its constitutional responsibility can act and weigh in with judgment. So I urge you as legislators, as members of this branch of government, to defer and vote no on this order. Thank you. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. This is the Maine Senate last week debating whether or not to approve a proposal to declare what's known as a solemn occasion to have the state's highest court weigh in on whether ranked choice voting, as approved by voters in November, conflicts with the state's constitution. The chair recognizes the senator from Penobscot, Senator Cushing. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen of the Senate, first rise uh, recognizing my good friend uh, the senator from Cumberland may be new here I want to pose a question as to whether he's aware that not only is the media here but these are recorded and can be viewed by his wife at any point so he, he provides some testimony at his peril um, in regards to the issue before us mr. president it it is a matter that has been brought by the Senate president in regards to an issue that the voters presented us with. And I recognize and respect that my colleagues here who may feel differently um, feel that the voters have spoken and we should accept that. But we do have that responsibility that was spoken of earlier here to assure that we do diligence in protecting the system of voting in this state. And if there were to be a question it would be more appropriate in some of our opinions, Mr. President, that we address that issue prior to this and that we respect the law court's ability to weigh this in a separate venue and provide us with guidance before we were to leave this session. So if action was necessary, we would be prepared both to address any changes and provide the proper funding so the Secretary of State can assure that town clerks and those who oversee elections have the knowledge and resources before they get to that level. Anyone involved with the mechanics of an election know that this doesn't just happen. There's tremendous preparation. There are dedicated people who work year-round to assure that the integrity and the process of, of validity to our electoral system is protected. 
and the logistics of that also are properly taken care of. So if we are indeed to go down this course, we are going to have to allow our elections division to be prepared. And I thank you for the opportunity to address the body. Chair recognizes the Senator from Kennebec, Senator Cates. Thank you, Mr. President Pro Tem. Um, as a supporter of ranked choice voting, I, I rise today in support of the pending motion. Uh, over the last month or so, we've all received dozens of emails, people who supported ranked choice voting at the ballot box and are urging us to vote against putting forth a solemn occasion request. The dynamic that appears to have been set up, Mr. President, is that if you are in favor of ranked choice voting, you should be against a solemn occasion, and that only those who oppose ranked choice voting are in favor of it. I believe that's a, a, a false choice. And, and to me, no matter where you stand with respect to ranked choice voting, we ought to be requesting this solemn occasion because all of us and all of our constituents have a real interest in having this matter resolved now instead of waiting for the chaos that awaits us if we don't do it now. Um, whether this is a solemn occasion or not, um, we could disagree about that. I, I predict the court will find this as a solemn occasion. The law court has said that a solemn occasion exists when the questions are of a serious and immediate nature, and I suggest they are here. In one of its opinions, the court went on to say, the members of the Maine Senate and the House of Representatives have, to have told us that they need our opinion in order to undertake their responsibilities. We take them at their word that an opinion on the constitutionality of the initiated bill by the justices would assist and inform the Senate and the House in the deliberations. And as we're deciding, are we going to be appropriating, what is it, $1 million, $2 million to put this system in place? We certainly need the guidance of, of the court. There is a very serious constitutional issue here. Uh, the Constitution talks about how the winner of an election in the House or the Senate or for, or for the governor's race is the one who has a plurality. That's the one who has the, the most votes. It's, it seems fairly clear to some people. Um, the ranked choice voting supporters have said no because a majority, that is uh, the, the winner through the ranked choice voting process, that a majority is also a plurality. Well, that's an interesting argument. But no matter which side you come down on, there's a very, very real issue here. And by the way, Mr. President, there's also a question about whether the court could decide that ranked choice voting is applicable in primary elections, but not in general elections, because of the way the Constitution is written. I think if there's one thing we can agree on, this matter will end up in court. When was the last time that a governor got elected with more than 50% of the vote? It's been quite a while. So we can do it now, well in advance of the election, or we can wait until November of 2018, when Jones gets 35% of the vote, Smith gets 34% of the vote, and Clark gets 31% of the vote. Jones has the most votes, but Smith wins under ranked choice voting. So who puts together a transition team? Who starts hiring staff? Who starts putting the budget together while this matter winds through the courts because the, the complaint for, to resolve this would be brought in the superior court and a superior court justice would make a decision and then that would get appealed to the law court. We're talking about potentially months. Or in the alternative, we could all come back in in November 
as our last act of the 128th legislature and, and, and declare a solemn occasion, which we can do now. And that would be great expense, and there would be huge turmoil. You know, I'm reminded of the old car ad that says, pay me now or pay me later, you know, do the oil change now or wait for the expensive car repair later. That's where we are today. We can do it now easily, or we can do it later when it's in the midst of chaos and when it'll be much more expensive for us to get involved. And, and remember that it's the same court that's going to decide this ultimately one way or another. Let's at least find out if the court agrees that this, there is a solemn occasion. So no matter how we might feel about ranked choice voting, I hope we'll, we'll all agree to do the responsible thing and vote yes on the pending motion. Thank you. Chair recognizes the Senator from Penobscot, Senator Gratwick. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chair Pro Tem, and ladies and gentlemen of the Senate, I rise in a great support of ranked choice voting. I think it's extraordinarily important. It was a major a factor uh, in my election. I'm going to support uh, today uh, because I like the idea of having ideas, opinions, uh, perspectives up front. I think that the more knowledge we have now, the better off we will be. Um, I hope that I have no idea the way the which way the court will be uh, resolving this. Um, I have strong feelings. I hope they resolve it in one particular way, in which case I'll be pleased. If, on the other hand, they um, resolve it in another way, um, I think we always have the option before us of amending the Constitution. It's a great big deal. It's a, it requires a great deal of work, thought. On the other hand, it's been done 172 times in our history. And it, this, is, to me, would be an occasion which would rise to that. So I think we're going to have a warning that this may be an appropriate avenue for us to go. So I think that this is simply giving us a, uh, an initial step down whatever road we need to take to get ranked choice voting. Thank you. Chair recognizes the Senator from Cumberland, Senator Diamond. Thank you, Mr. President and ladies and gentlemen of the Senate. Um, I approach this from a very pragmatic, common sense, logical kind of way, I hope. Um, I've had the privilege and the honor to run statewide elections for eight years. And that was a tremendous, tremendous responsibility. And one of the things we always look for before Election Day was trying to anticipate problems, trying to anticipate uh, crises. And no matter how well we did that anticipation, there were always surprises, there were always things that jumped out at us, always things that caused problems with local clerks, which we would get involved with at the state level. This is one of those occasions from a very common sense approach as I see it. This is one of those occasions where we know there is a crisis coming at us. As you've heard so well articulated, if on election day we have more than two candidates and the winner becomes a loser and the loser becomes a winner, then there's going to be a challenge. And I believe the court understands that. I think we understand it if we look at it carefully. There will be challenges not only in governors, the gubernatorial races, but also in the Senate races and the House races. And I think it's our responsibility to get that challenge minimized as much as possible. I do think the court will, uh, will take this and treat it as a solemn occasion, because I think they understand 
the chaos that awaits. And I think they understand the importance of getting this question answered well in advance of the problem so it can be addressed. The Attorney General has questioned the constitutionality, the Secretary of State has, but the ultimate decision will come from the court. So I think we have to understand and realize we're just asking the question, a question that it's our responsibility to ask. Because if we wait until the day after election, there'll be many, many people who'll say, why? Why didn't you have the opportunity? Why didn't you get this cleared up? Doesn't mean we oppose or support ranked choice. We have before us an order that will clear this question up, which will avoid, in my opinion, a huge, huge crisis the day following the election. So I hope you'll support this order. Thank you, Mr. President. The chair recognizes the senator from Kennebec, Senator Searway. Thank you, Mr. President, pro tem, ladies and gentlemen of the Senate. I'd like to speak just in regards to common sense as well. I think many of you have bought an item and you had directions to follow and lots of times you just went and took it upon yourself to try the thing out and then if it didn't work you went back to the directions. And sometimes you even broke whatever you was working on and then you said, oh, I should have read the directions. Well, this is, the directions are our constitution. And many times when you buy this item, it says, please read the directions before you use this item. And this is what we have to do. And this is what we're doing here today. So I'm asking you to read the directions. Thank you. Chair recognizes the senator from Penobscot, Senator Cushing. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. President, when the roll is taken, would you please record the yeas and nays? Senator from Penobscot, Senator Cushing, has requested a roll call. In order for the chair to order a roll call, it must have the express desire of one-fifth of the members present. All those in favor of a roll call, please raise your hand. Obviously, more than one-fifth of the members present are in favor of a roll call. A roll call has been ordered. Pending question before the Senate is adoption of the order, passage of the order. If you are in favor of the order, you will vote yes. If you are opposed to it, you will vote no. Is the Senate ready for the question? The doorkeepers will secure the chamber. The secretary will open the vote. Ball now voted. Secretary will close the vote and run the total. The chair will announce the vote. 24 senators having voted in the affirmative and 10 in the negative and one being excused. The motion to pass prevails. And with that vote, the state Senate last week approved the proposal to ask the Maine Supreme Judicial Court to give an opinion on whether ranked choice voting, as approved by voters in November, conflicts with the state's constitution. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. On Monday, this legislature's Environment and Natural Resources Committee held a public hearing on LD-103, an act to prohibit the use of certain disposable food service containers. The containers the bill seeks to ban are polystyrene, commonly referred to by the brand name Styrofoam. This type of packaging has been banned in some municipalities across the state already, including Freeport and more recently Portland and South Portland. 
Supporters of the ban cite environmental and health concerns, and they say that there are Maine-based paper companies that make an alternative product or would like to for hot food and beverages. Lobbyists for the restaurant and grocery store industries downplay environmental impacts, question the health impacts, and say, in the words of Greg Dougal of the Maine Restaurant Association, that, quote, simply put, it keeps hot food hot and cold food cold better than any other product, referring to polystyrene. LD-103 was presented by Stanley Zeigler, who represents several towns in Waldo County. Representative Zeigler said he was presenting it as a jobs bill, citing industries in Maine that could make the replacement packaging, and also the negative impact of polystyrene pollution on the environment, fisheries, and tourism. Representative Dean Rikerson of Kittery also spoke in support. Mark Bergeron of the Maine Department of Environmental Protection, however, spoke in opposition. He said the Maine DEP found some of the terminology in the bill regarding recycling and composting to be problematic. And he also said that the the department has concerns that they lack the resources to enforce the ban if it becomes law. Although there are numerous communities around the United States, including some here in Maine, that regulate or ban polystyrene food containers, there is no other state that has enacted a statewide ban on these products. Because the proposed ban on polystyrene containers appears to be without limit, it would affect not only the customer who goes to a deli for a sandwich, but also any manufacturer or wholesaler of these products. The bill would require the department to regulate all food providers and container manufacturers statewide from factories, supermarkets, and restaurants potentially all the way down to the level of a bake sale, farmer's market, or church fair. It is inappropriate to burden small nonprofit organizations with the cost of procuring special containers. Because the bill also prohibits wholesale use of these products, restaurant supply warehouses and possibly big box outlet stores would be affected as well. Any company that manufactures polystyrene products and any other food container would have to cease, or I'm sorry, that does not meet the inconsistent definitions of recyclable or compostable in Maine, would have to cease those operations. It is also possible that in some circumstances, polystyrene containers may be necessary for handling or storage of certain food products under federal requirements. This bill has no provision or allowance for food safety issues. This bill would require that the department develop rules to determine which materials used in food service containers are compostable or recyclable and implement measures to enforce against any sale or distribution of those containers made from a material which does not qualify as compostable or recyclable. The bill would also require the department to develop a means to implement a prohibition against polystyrene food service containers statewide and the department would not be able to implement these programs within our existing resources. That was Mark Bergeron of the Maine DEP. Industry groups, including the Maine Restaurant Association and the Retail Association of Maine, joined the Maine DEP in opposing the bill. Shelley Doak of the Maine Grocers and Food Producers Association. Maine would be the first state in the nation to impose such a ban, and we are speaking in opposition. Our members use polystyrene because it works. FDA approved polystyrene food service products offer because it offers a way to serve fresh food and to help prevent the spread of disease. This ban would, as I read it, 
prohibit the importation of significant number of perishable food items, including meats, cheeses, vegetables, seafood, and eggs. This ban would capture products also processed by Maine's fisheries that annually pack and ship millions and millions of pounds of fish and seafood for export. Maine's grocery industry relies on the buying power of a regional and national marketplace. This ban would make Maine an outlier. Food producers would be forced to weigh the cost benefit of shifting to more expensive packaging or likely curtail shipments of altogether, as Maine is a very small market share. I ask the committee to consider what evidence is there to support a ban solely on food service containers where there are other industries that rely on polystyrene packaging or polystyrene materials, including mailing companies, florists, and builders. Are there affordable alternatives? Polystyrene food service products generally are more economical. Wholesale costs can be two to five times less than their paper-based or reusable counterparts and therefore keep costs down. How would you justify the increased costs to affected businesses and their customers by mandating a shift to a more expensive alternative? After all, a product ban is akin to a tax. Our members are recognized as environmental leaders. They are reducing their input, excuse me, their footprint, investing in comprehensive recycling and composting programs, shifting to more environmentally friendly systems and product lines and educating their customers and supporting community environmental initiatives. We all want a healthier environment, just not a more expensive one. I wanted to also ask um, this committee to consider a question about preemption. Would this, um, would LD103 impose um, preemption on all main municipalities and how would that preemption um, be addressed? So I'd, I'd like you to think about that. There are, as been, has been noted um, in earlier testimony, six main cities, southern main cities, Portland, Brunswick, Saco, Freeport, South Portland, and Topsom that have passed bans that are far less uh, comprehensive than the bill you have before you today. So we'd ask you to entertain um, how it is you envision um, dealing with the existing bans and their uh, really limited and narrow focus relative to this bill that I believe is drafted would, again, um, have a huge impact on the grocery industry and the thousands of food products that are imported into the state of Maine. And lastly, um, for the record, I'd also like to address um, this uh, question that um, was raised earlier um, and um, relative to uh, any economic assessments. To the best of my knowledge, I and others uh, coming after me were very involved with the development of the City of Portland's ban. And there was no economic uh, assessment on the impacts of the businesses or their customers as a baseline 
Um, and to the best of my knowledge, there's been no economic impact assessments in any of the other communities on the businesses and their customers. And um, I believe there has also been no uh, economic uh, assessments or measurability of the impacts of these uh, ordinances on municipalities and their customers, um, businesses and their customers. So I would ask you to um, perhaps think about, about that um, as you uh, deliberate um, this piece of legislation. And I will close by saying thank you. That was Shelley Doak of the Maine Grocers and Food Association or Food Producers Association. Several people spoke in support of banning polystyrene food packaging, or LD-103, at uh, Monday's public hearing. Here's what a few of them had to say. My name is Tony Owens. I'm from Cape Elizabeth and currently work as an emergency physician at Maine Medical Center. I'm also an associate professor of medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine. Today, I would like to address some of the harmful effects of styrofoam how they are disseminated through the environment, difficulties in managing styrofoam waste, alternatives to styrofoam in the food industry, and finally, economic opportunities in Maine, all in less than three minutes. <laughs> Polystyrene is a suspected carcinogen and neurotoxin. The EPA discovered almost 30 years ago the polystyrene accumulates in adipose or fatty tissue in the human body. The process is enhanced when styrofoam comes in contact with hot, greasy, or acidic foods or when it's heated as in a microwave. Styrofoam is produced from fossil fuels, thus contributing to already significant challenges in climate change. It's difficult to recycle and is often not accepted at recycling centers. It can produce toxic gases when it's incinerated improperly, and it has almost infinite half-life and therefore comprises up to 30% of some of our landfill space. Being lightweight, floating, and easily broken into smaller pieces, styrofoam finds its way into our waters, lakes, rivers, and the ocean. I've been a member of the Maine Island Trail Association for 29 years, and every spring I volunteer as a skipper for the island cleanup in Casco Bay. Broken pieces of styrofoam food packaging are ubiquitous and comprise a large component of what we collect in the island shoreline. In the ocean, this debris poses harm to marine and bird life as it is easily mistaken for food and can have fatal consequences if ingested by marine animals. So where's the good news? Freeport, Portland, and other Maine communities have enacted styrofoam bans very successfully. At Maine Medical Center, where I work, the Food Service Department serves thousands of meals every day to our patients, their families, and our staff, all without styrofoam. 20 miles from here in Waterville, the Hudamaki Mill manufactures molded fiber paper food containers for consumer and industry. They use post-consumer recycled paper, and their products themselves are both recyclable and compostable and compare favorably with styrofoam both functionally and economically. So here, committee members, is the proverbial win-win situation. Your support for LD-103 is both a win for the main consumer and environment, providing them with a safer, locally produced product, as well as a win for the main based and hard-pressed wood fiber paper industry. This is just what the doctor ordered. Good for the environment, good for the economy. What's not to like? Thank you for your attention.
My name is Ed Soslovic, and I am here just as a uh, main resident. I'm not with any group, and by the time I finish speaking, I suspect no group in the room would want to associate with me. So um, uh, I am here, uh, and actually the only credential that, that why you should listen to me just today is that Bill Belichick and I graduated from the same high school and the same college. So I feel that today I can honestly say that if Bill Belichick were here, he would say, 103, good bill. <laughs> Next. Um, so uh, I am here, though, because uh, I did serve on the Portland City Council before the voters of Portland had the good sense to toss me out. Um, and I, I worked on this issue for uh, a bunch of years. Um, and we ended up putting a, a, a task force together called the Green Packaging Task Force. We had representatives from all sides of the issue on the task force. We Lots of public meetings. We took public comment at every meeting. There's folks in the room today that you'll probably hear from on both sides of this, this issue that were on the task force. Uh, so we looked a, really looked hard at it. Um, and as usual, we didn't come to a, a, a unanimous report, but we did end up uh, coming up with an ordinance in Portland. And we went to for first, Freeport. It's got to be almost 25 years now. It was 20 years when we had them down to talk to us. Freeport's had a, a ban on expanded polystyrene products for almost 25 years now. Uh, Portland, uh, ours has been in effect this April will be about two years that the, the ban on expanded polystyrene, food service, and, and disposable coolers. Um, we, we, you know, said, first of all, as far as building products, you know, we weren't going to go there. Uh, once you put it in a house or in a building, hopefully it stays put and, it, and it's not getting out into the environment, so we weren't going to deal with that. It's the stuff that we saw blowing around the streets of Portland um, that really were the problem. And so rather than go on and on and on, which I'm more than capable of, um, what I'd like to do is, is just make a couple of quick points and then uh, be happy to take questions. Or if you have questions, you want me to get back to you at the work session. Um, number one, I was, I've also been on the, the board of EcoMaine on the recycling committee for 10 years. Um, and yes, uh, expanded polystyrene foam is theoretically recyclable. It's theoretically recyclable. And we had uh, uh, the head of the recycling program, staff person from EcoMaine, on the task force. And he said, yep, it's theoretically recyclable. However, it's, it's functionally not, certainly here in Maine. Uh, one of the reasons is that even no matter how much you compress it, it's still mainly air, which is why it's such a good insulation uh, product. Um, so you can't effectively and, and economically um, ship it to where it would need to be, to be recycled, which is nowhere in the state of Maine. So you'd be paying to truck air, which uh, is not very uh, cost-effective to do. Also, the collection would be very difficult. Uh, some of the, the, uh, the industry folks who were against us banning it said, well, we'll, we'll do a recycling program in Portland for uh, expanded polystyrene foams. Okay, what, what would that look like? They said, well, once a month, we'll send a truck out to your Riverside recycling facility, and people can bring their expanded polystyrene foam to it. Well, I don't know about you, but the only way that recycling has really taken off in, in, in southern Maine is with single-sort recycling, where people put all their re mixed recyclables in one bin and, and, it kind of, and we pick it up. The idea of people separating their expanded polystyrene foam out of their trash, out of their recy other recyclables, and then making a special trip really didn't seem like uh, it would pass a straight face test in terms of recycling. So I, I think, you know, we came to the conclusion that the recycling option in Maine, at least for extended polystyrene foam, really was a non-starter. Um, in terms of alternatives, uh, we, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, you guys are in a tough spot. I, I sat in this room, but it was a different committee, so I don't have to bring chocolate. 
unless you guys request a solemn occasion to interpret that. Um, I think we'll write that letter. Yeah. <laughs> it was the timeout room back then. It was state and local. Um, the, um, sorry. Hopefully there's no state and local members here. Um, the, um, it's, it's tough. We want it, we all, I believe we all want to protect the environment in Maine. Uh, it's, 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 it's important for so many reasons, not the least of which it's a big part of our economy. Certainly, right in the healthy Casco Bay is a big part of the, the economy for Portland. Um, but I believe that most of us want to do that without hurting business, without costing jobs, especially in a state where, where so many people are struggling. So I'm here to say that in, in, in Portland, we've done it. We've had almost two years of, of going through it. I'm not aware of anybody losing their job. I'm not aware of any business going out of business. I'm not aware of any business suffering. Um, people said, oh, if you do this, you won't be able to get a hot cup of coffee in Portland. Last time I checked, there's still one or two coffee shops in Portland. Um, people in the food service industry, oh, my God, the restaurants will close. Well, there's still at least one or two places to get a bite in, in Portland. Um, so I, I, I'm here to say that, that if you do it right, and I... I really do have great confidence, just a couple of exceptions around this table, I have great confidence in you uh, that you will do it right. I believe that, that you can work this bill into something that will remove a, a dangerous product from, from the environment um, and do it in such a way that doesn't cost any jobs, doesn't cost any business to go under. There's plenty of alternatives out there. When we, again, I know this sounds crazy, especially for someone from the People's Republic of Portland to say, but I believe that government should lead by example. So in the city of Portland, before we considered taking on an ordinance, we said, well, gee, the school department uses expanded polystyrene foam in the breakfast and lunch program. We're probably one of the largest users in the city. Uh, so did uh, the Barron Center, our, our, um, our, our hospital, public hospital. Um, can we, are there alternatives? Well, lo and behold, just up the road in, in Waterville, somebody mentioned earlier, Hudamaki, formerly Chinette, they actually, to prove that we could do this, they donated some of their product to the school department so we could use it as a test and boy, that stuff worked just great. And the school, I don't know if the school department's still using it, but that was how we, we weaned ourselves off of expanded polystyrene foam. So at this point, I'd be happy to take uh, any questions, because I said, we've, we've been through it. South Portland followed our lead. We followed Freeport's lead. And by the way, uh, from an enforcement standpoint, we found it to be uh, voluntary compliance. Businesses have so many other alternatives now to go to, that their suppliers, their vendors, um, no one is saying they can't get alternative products that meet the requirements. And, and also, although I can't speak for the city of Portland because I'm not part of the council anymore, uh, I'm sure that, that Troy Moon, who's the sustainability coordinator, would be happy to provide uh, the, the rules and regulations that we use, that the restaurants and food service, I mean, we have food trucks, we have everything going on in Portland. They all seem to be able to comply, no fuss, no muss. My name is Melissa Gates. I'm a resident of Cushing, and I'm here today testifying on behalf of the Surfrider Foundation main chapter and its thousands of supporters, members, and volunteers in support with specific amendments to strengthen LD-103 to prohibit the use of certain disposable food service containers. I also want to offer thanks to Representative, I'm going to butcher this, your last name, Ziegler Ziegler? Ziegler. The Gosh, I knew it. Uh, thank you for bringing this important bill um, before this committee. Um, the amount of plastic debris in the ocean is truly staggering. A recent study published by the International Journal Science estimates that 17 billion pounds of plastic enters the ocean annually at the hands of only 192 countries with coastal access. 
Abigail Barrows, who's a Maine resident and the microplastics principal investigator for Adventure Scientists, reported that a randomly taken one liter surface water sample from Maine marine or freshwater environments averages three pieces of microplastics. She notes what we know and what science categorically backs up. Source reduction is key in addressing plastic pollution in our waters. Because it's lightweight and it floats, we know that expanded polystyrene is a huge environmental detriment. It's easily swept from our streets through the storm drains and right into the waterways. Um, and to address a comment I heard earlier, um, we also know that most of the debris that's in the streets and winds up in our waterways isn't actually littered intentionally. Um, it's swept up from the streets because it is so lightweight. And we know also that 80% of the debris that's in the ocean is from the land. We know that polystyrene degrades water quality and injures, kills, and contaminates sea life. And it's often mistaken for food. I know I'm not telling you anything new. Other people have said this all today, but repetition can be good. Um, it causes significant health detriments to marine creatures, which often does lead to their death. They can't pass it through their system, so it fills their stomachs, suffocates them. Um, and as the last speaker noted, Lee Lee, um, that there's this bioaccumulation impact as well. For humans who eat sea life, significant health risks are imposed from plastic particulates inherent in those animals that are then subsequently ingested. We know also that polystyrene food wares negatively impact public health. Styrene is a toxic substance labeled by the U.S. Department of Health, the third source for this statistic, as a reasonably anticipated human carcinogen. It's known to leach from food containers into the food and beverages when heated or even if the food and beverage put into those containers is too hot or when it comes into contact with alcohol, fatty, or acidic foods. And as the high school student noted, that's most of what's going in those containers. So we can reasonably anticipate that when you're drinking out of a polystyrene or a cup or an EPS um, foam food container, you're eating stuff out of there, you are eating toxic chemicals that cause cancer. In fact, styrene residues are found in 100% of all samples of human fat tissue from exposure through food, like your sea life, and also from the packaging. We also know that plastic debris litters our environment, beaches, and our waters, not only wreaking havoc on the environment, but also on the appeal to residents and tourists. And it requires continual costly cleanup. Recreation and tourism is the single largest contributing sector to Maine's ocean economy. Um, it's vital for the health of our environment, the quality of our life as Mainers, and our economy that we take action now to mitigate this needless yet pervasive, highly toxic material from our state. We also know that while there are no EPS manufacturers in Maine, we are fortunate to have a maker of fiber-based food service wares, another fun name to pronounce, hukamati, 
I think I did that right. It's in Waterville, as you've heard today, and they provide economical alternatives to polystyrene that are currently used in hospitals, schools, and other main institutions and businesses. We know that a common and absolutely legitimate concern of legislators when considering a ban on cheap, disposable products is the fiscal impact to potentially affected business owners. According to an economic analysis conducted by the city of San Jose, Takeout containers used by full-service restaurants represent only 0.3% of total sales revenues. For takeout restaurants, those to-go containers represent a mere 1.3% of total sales revenues. These facts can be extrapolated to Maine and demonstrate that the cost differential between polystyrene containers and the eco-friendly alternative made right here in Maine would not be a significant determining factor of financial impact for our food service establishments. Multiple food service establishments in Portland and Freeport, where bans on this toxic foodware have been in effect for some time, can further attest to this fact that banning polystyrene has not bankrupted them, nor been causative of negative financial stress. We know that EPS food containers are not recycled in Maine, and regardless, that very often the used food containers cannot be recycled at all anywhere because they're too tainted with that oily food waste to be processed. We know that polystyrene needs to be banned to protect human health and the environment. And to my understanding, to speak uh, to Representative Pierce's concern earlier about um, what percentage of the EPS and the polystyrene trash that we're finding in the marine environment uh, compared to um, marine industry and fisheries trade, um, we find both. And I believe Representative Devon has a bill on deck that's about to come out of the revisor's office to address um, EPS, expanded polystyrene, and styrene materials from the fisheries and marine trades industry. Um, so in addition today to pleading, pleading with you to recognize this as the nonpartisan issue it is and urging your support, Sir Frater requests that you amend the definition presented in Section 2B of the bill. I won't uh, belabor the reasons why it's in my testimony. You've heard it already from Travis Wagner and others. Um, but if you amend it so it only excludes compostable products from the prohibition, that would be wonderful. It would actually carry more weight and uh, realize better benefits if this bill does pass. I provided testimony, or, yeah, testimony to you today um, that includes a draft bill with these amendments, uh, as well as a suggested modification that would enable food service establishments to ask the department for a six-month waiver of compliance so that they could use up their current inventory of any polystyrene or expanded polystyrene products prior to complying with the law. The Surfrider Foundation strongly urges this committee to do what is right for Maine people, for our health, for our visitors, for the ocean waves and beaches, and for the environment by adopting the amendments proposed herein and passing this bill out of committee with an ought to pass as amended vote. So there are some excerpts from Monday's public hearing on LD-103. Uh, the testimony in support of passage of LD-103 lasted more than one and a half hours. And among others that supported the bill were the Sierra Club of Maine and the Natural Resources Council of Maine. The committee's work session on the bill, that's the Natural Resources Committee, Environment and Natural Resources Committee, will be held on February 13th. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Join us here every Wednesday at 4 o'clock on WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. 
but not next week. I'll be away next week, and we're hoping to bring you a special report on refugees produced by a WERU volunteer in this time slot next week, and we'll be back the week after that. Keep it tuned here right now for Democracy Now!, which is coming up next, and then Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg and a whole evening filled with great music here on your community radio station made possible with your support. Thanks for listening. Support for WERU comes